Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astella Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astella is an early stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astella around the world. everyone and welcome to another episode of Estella Around the World. Today we have Gurdjieff on the episode. He's a founder and managing partner of MBX Capital, having been a caregiver to his family through multiple health crises. He wishes to make healthcare more equitable, affordable and accessible for all. He serves as the director or observer on the boards of MBX partner companies, Contraline, CareRev and Atlas Health. Previously, Gurdjieff was the COO of FundRx, a leading healthcare investment marketplace, where he built the firm's investment technology and pioneered its expert-driven diligence system. He began his career working with private equity and technology clients at Bain and in public finance at Morgan Stanley. Gurdjieff is an instructor on healthcare finance at the Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine, and lectures in the healthcare management program at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Welcome Gurdjieff. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the time, guys. Thank you, Gurdjieff, for coming. It's uh, very awesome to see you here. So Gurdjieff is a fellow at Kaufman, my group and my class, and uh, it's a pleasure to see you here and uh, go over your journey and uh, talk a little bit of uh, your views. Starting here, uh, if you could give us a brief uh, intro about uh, the beginning of your career. You hold uh, degrees in computer science, public policy and economics, and uh, you started your career at uh, investment banking, which is um, pretty much a starting point. Yeah, for run of the mill place to start, <laughs> I suppose. You know, I originally developed a health interest in healthcare in undergrad. Um, within public policy, I spent a lot of time focused on healthcare policy in particular. You know, if you fast forward a few years, I, you know, after graduating uh, college, I actually became a musician of all things. I ran a record label in New York City and, you know, was producing music for a bunch of others and very quickly realized I didn't want to be a starving artist in New York. And I certainly wasn't talented enough to pull it off. So I uh, ended up joining Bain & Company where, you know, I really began my career. I um, spent a few years there, with, met a lot of great people, you know, kind of learned how to operate at the early stages of my career. But at the end of the day, I realized that I had entrepreneurial DNA, you know, I wanted to build businesses. Um, and so I started to think really deeply about where do I want to spend the next 20, 30 years of my life? And what are the areas where, you know, if I begin now, you know, I can get really good at something by investing the energy over time and, and hopefully make a dent within that domain of knowledge. That led my partner and I to start a business called FundRx, which was a uh, healthcare and life sciences investment marketplace. So this is circa 2015. Many of the large funds in the Valley in these days did not yet have big bio funds. There were, uh, of course, many great biotech funds that were quite storied at the time, but they were all very large. And so there was a limited amount of like traditional seed capital available for early stage, in particular, life sciences companies. And one of the drivers for that we found was that 
doing diligence in our space is extraordinarily challenging. There's a real depth of expertise that's required evaluating the companies that we look at. You know, for instance, if we're looking at you know a vaccines company as an example, you need obviously expertise in the the indication that the vaccine is for. So maybe it's an infectious disease, maybe it's a cancer vaccine. So you need some knowledge around that. But you also need an immense amount of knowledge around the regulatory environment, the approval pathway for that potential drug, um, how it's going to get manufactured, uh, and so on and so forth. So the idea behind the marketplace we built was to basically build within that a community of domain experts. So industry executives, physicians and scientists that were uh, very deep in their in their respective fields and leverage their collective knowledge and wisdom to more rapidly evaluate these companies and provide signal to investors to help early stage life sciences businesses get off the ground. In building that firm, we really cut our teeth as investors. We made over you know, 20 kind of syndicated investments over that period, learned what to do, what not to do, kind of, kind of learned the venture business. So for us, it was we didn't learn the venture business in the traditional way. If you go work at a big fund and learn that way, but kind of learned very much by doing and so then in 2019, we raised a, a, an internal fund within FundRx to kind of expand our ability to invest in, in the companies that we were most excited about. And then in 2020, we spun that business out, uh, and, in that, and that business is now called MDX Capital, and we're now investing out of our, our second fund uh, there. So a bit of a winding journey from being a failed musician, I suppose, but very excited to be doing what we're doing uh, at MDX now. That's really interesting. I did not know the musician part. Really cool. And it's also really cool that FundRx, you have the experience as an both as an operator, as an investor at the same time. So you got kind of that two-in-one experience, I would say. That's right. It was interesting. You know, we raised venture capital for our own company. Uh, mm-hmm. and so we had the VC-backed board and, and so forth. You know, I think that whole experience was great in the sense that it built a lot of empathy. Like we had to go raise rounds of financing ourselves and you know, manage that sort of flow as well as grow the organization and so forth. So obviously not building, you were more of like a fintech company in terms of its m- metrics rather than a classic healthcare company, but it was a good experience in building empathy. And uh, Gerdaina, we'll touch on this subject later on, but was this a uh, beginning of a... Uh, how you build the people that the venture advisors that uh, that you created for MBX or or it has nothing to do no, with No, that's exactly right. Yeah. So within MBX, we have a, a large community, about a thousand individuals that are part of a network that we call the Atom. You know, we call the people in the network venture advisors. And, and these are the same people that we recruited in, into the network, you know, during the FundRx days. Oh, excellent. Very interesting. Tell us a bit about how is your experience as a board member? We see some uh, very interesting uh, companies in your portfolio as uh, Contraline, Vaccinity, that uh, announced IPO. We'll touch base on that as well, but uh, congratulations. So tell us a bit uh, how you position yourself as a board member, what kind of style you have and uh, how you add value. The number one thing as a VC board member uh, is first, do no harm. We start with that approach. You know, the founders that we partner with are building companies that we believe will be really incredible. But because what they're doing is incredibly challenging, they're under immense, they're under an immense amount of stress. They're going through the ups and downs of building a company. And so I think the first thing to do in terms of building trust with the people that we're partnering with is to demonstrate to them that, yes, we want the great updates. And when everything's going well, we want to hear that. But we're also totally okay when things aren't going well, you know, we're professionals and we're here to help you get through that bump in the road. That's number one in terms of my beliefs about how we should engage with our partners is start with trust building, 
and really demonstrate that you are a professional. I think there is this risk that can happen where an investor becomes very emotionally attached to an investment or they feel like, oh, this deal has to go perfectly or you know, my career is going to be over or, or whatever it is. And I think that can actually be extraordinarily toxic for companies because then you see investors that are putting weird pressure on management teams that ultimately is counterproductive. So try to avoid that, number one. The second thing is, I think you need to meet each CEO where they are. So there are some CEOs that we work with that are extraordinarily tenured. They are many decades into their careers. They've been around the block. They really know how to scale businesses uh, like the ones that they're building. And so the types of things that they need tend to be quite tactical. It's, hey, do you happen to know this kind of person or this type of customer? Or, you know, it's very specific. So the great part about those relationships is I can go to them and say, hey, what do you need? And they know exactly what they need and they can give me homework. And as a board member, then I can go and do that homework to support the business. On the other hand, for CEOs that are earlier in their careers, and maybe this is their first company and they're kind of learning as they're going, as they're scaling, with those folks, you know, I find that it's appropriate to give encouragement when things are going well. And when things aren't going well, to provide useful benchmarks of other companies that perhaps are approaching the problem differently and how they've approached it. And so that can then give that CEO or that management team an understanding of, okay, I'm going about this problem in this way. It seems like many companies that have been very successful have gone about it in this other way. Like maybe I should consider that. And I think my approach is generally you have to let your leaders come to their own conclusions about their business. My job as a board member is to be an advisor and a counselor, supporter of the company, obviously to provide governance and so forth as well. But at the end of the day, we want to back our partners and give them the room to grow. That's awesome. Now that we are talking about companies that are in the MBX uh, portfolio, we'd love to learn a little bit more about MBX's thesis and a few more of the investments. If you can just give us an overview, that would be awesome. Absolutely. So there's one big philosophical underpinning to what we do. And then we have many thesis areas that we constantly iterate on within that philosophical constraint. And that constraint is that we want our dollars to be accretive. In our business these days, because there's so much capital flowing around, you know, you see this behavior of, I have to get into this hot deal, right? I need to go chase this one company that everyone needs to be in. And if I don't get in this company, my fund isn't any good. My LPs won't think I'm any good. How do I get into the Series A that Sequoia or Andreessen or, or a fund of that caliber reputation is leading? And frankly, we think that that's the wrong approach for a couple of reasons. The first is it probably leads to adverse selection and it will ultimately lead to returns that are less than superior because frankly, if it's that caliber of company and you can get in, maybe there, there's something, something else going on. And then the second thing is, at the end of the day, I just don't think it's the most useful, it's not the highest and best use of those potential dollars. That company will get funded. That hot company will get funded irrespective of whether MBX exists. And so as I really think about like what's our purpose, like what is the purpose of the capital that I manage? Obviously, it's to be a sustainable you know, asset for our limited partners, but there's parallel purpose that's very important, which is how do you help will things into existence that would not otherwise necessarily have been created? And so when we think about where we invest, we want to invest in those categories that are somewhat overlooked or neglected by the venture industry broadly. And we want to partner with, we want to be one of the first institutional investors in the companies that we partner with. And generally speaking, that means we try to avoid mega competitive financings because great, if it's a good company and they're creating something that's good for the world, I'm happy, they're going to get funded. Awesome. 
I want to go find those financings that perhaps are less competitive for whatever reason in the beginning, but find those diamonds in the rough that you know we can hopefully you know deliver a lot of value for and create signal around that idea that helps our downstream investors you know then build. So that's kind of the number one. That's where we start. That's the the philosophy of of how we deploy dollars. And then within that, as we think about that framework, we try to be quite thematic in how we invest. And generally on a quarterly basis, my partner and I are generating you know, new ideas or areas that we should be exploring. And we typically explore those areas in conjunction with domain experts within our network. You know, so we'll, we'll you know, through some reading, or some academic literature or whatever it is, we'll say, hey, maybe there's something here. Let's go find the right domain experts, build a working group around this potential concept, this, this problem area. And then let's go learn as much as we can about it so that we can kind of approach that problem in the most robust way possible. So as an example, my partner Zishan spent about a year building a thesis, particularly around maternal health in the United States. Unfortunately, you know, amongst developed countries, we have some of the worst health outcomes for mothers in our country cohort group. And in particular, our healthcare system is really failing mothers of color. You know, the outcomes in that community are not where they should be for a nation as you know wealthy and well-resourced as ours is. And there are many reasons for that. But we started with, okay, hey, this is a big problem. Um, there are many approaches to this problem. And it, and it goes through to things that are very responsive. So as an example, um, you know, we have a very high rate of admission to neonatal ICUs. So we looked at how can you improve the, the NICU experience? That's on the post-birth end of things. On the pre-birth end of things, we're not doing the best job we could in terms of educating you know, expectant families about what they can be doing prior to birth you know, to stay healthy and to be well and take care of themselves and have an overall healthy pregnancy. And you know, there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into that. And so there's a whole opportunity there around providing doulas to mothers early in their journey to help them navigate what's a very complex experience. So we looked at everything from the services end of things to like the biotech end of things like literally medical devices in the ICU, and then ultimately decided to make a, an investment in the category. But it was very oriented around, there's this big problem, let's understand all of the possible causes and solutions, and then go invest in the companies that we believe will make the biggest dent. And so in our case, we decided to go upstream, right? Rather than, you know, once the problem's already occurred and you've already had the child, like, it's almost too late. Like, how do we stop it from happening in the first place? I mean, so we ended up focusing most of our time on the early stages of pregnancy and helping mothers to navigate the pregnancy in the best way possible. Amazing. And going back to the the idea of uh, the group of venture advisors, because I understood that they help you on building the thesis and uh, having different uh, side views on, on the same uh, market. So how do you bring all these people together and keep them motivated and interest aligned and also question is if uh, they have a important role on uh, sorting the deals as well for your firm. Absolutely. So it is a very large community of advisors that we have, as I mentioned, a bit over a thousand individuals. And as with any large community, right, there's different levels of engagement amongst different people. Virtually everyone in that group has a very high pressure day job. Uh, many of them are practicing clinicians and surgeons. Many of them are C-suite at large you know, organizations and so on. Part of our value proposition to folks like that is that they're really, you know, we've structured a very informal program where they can engage when they have interest and bandwidth to engage, but there isn't a formal like, hey, you need to be on this call every week kind of thing. 
because that's just not realistic for where they are in their point of their careers. At the same time, you know, these are folks that have 30, 40 years of knowledge that's built up in a particular domain of expertise. And so the insights that they're able to provide in 15 minutes are typically things that might take me five months to figure out, right? If I can even figure it out at all. And so as an investor, it's such a rich community that we were fortunate to work with because I think the hardest part in early diligence is you can meet a company as an investor, you can get really excited, but then you have to like really build conviction, right? Like we're very concentrated investors. We only make 15 to 20 investments per fund. So every company we invest in, you know, we really need to believe it. And getting to that level of belief requires an immense amount of diligence that in this market, uh, you know, you don't have time for in a lot of cases. And so the way that we, we've cracked that is you know, very early in our process, usually the second or third call of the company, we're bringing in four or five domain experts that are really relevant to that business. And that serves a multifold purpose for all parties involved. On the one hand, for the experts that are participating, they get to meet a really cool, interesting company that we've you know, kind of curated to put in front of them. And that may be interesting for their business to partner with. They could end up becoming an advisor to that company. There's a whole bunch of stuff that could occur out of that for them. For the entrepreneur, it's a potential source of talent. It's a potential source of, of business relationships. And it also demonstrates to the entrepreneur that as a firm, we can hopefully bring some value to the table for them. And then, of course, we get the great privilege of being the fly on the wall in that conversation and getting to learn from this exchange of thoughts that's happening between people that are really deep in their fields that lets us get to that conviction point, I think, much faster than we would if we took a different approach. So our, from an incentive standpoint and so forth, advisors tend to work with us because they're either interested, some of them are very interested in co-investing with us, so many folks do that. Some of them are very interested in just learning about companies at the bleeding edge of their field uh, and want to stay on top of that. Others like the community aspect of it. Others like to source deals, and we do share part of our carry with folks at source deals and send over opportunities that we, we ultimately invest in. And then finally, others are, are in it because they see it as an opportunity to identify new board roles for themselves or advisor roles and, and so forth. So many different incentives for why people work with us and collaborate with us in that way. So looking at your portfolio companies, I see you co-invested with NEA, with GFC, with Founders Funds and others. Do you normally have an active role in helping founders build their rounds and bring those funds to the rounds? Or are they usually designed by the founders? Yeah, so it, it widely varies. I'd say um, for any company where we've led the prior round, we play a very active role in constructing the follow-on finance in terms of you know identifying the right investors, helping the entrepreneur build the list that they'll go out to, making those introductions, brokering those connections, and so forth. There are, of course, other companies where we're more uh, passively involved, where we're part of a broader syndicate, where we're collaborating with a firm that we trust and have worked with in the past, and perhaps they're taking the lead role on those opportunities. You know, we're there to support in a secondary capacity, but you know, that's a small portion of our opportunities. But certainly where we're a leader, you know, a lead on the deal, we're playing a very active role. Very, very interesting. And good day. Recently, uh, vaccinated one of your portfolio companies and also DIPO. And uh, that's right. Congratulations. Uh, very, thank you. Very exciting. Can you talk a bit about uh, what the company uh, developed and uh, how was uh, actually your journey of interaction uh, behind uh, the scenes and, and how you built uh, the opportunity to invest? Yeah. So we invested in Vaccinity Series B. The uh, company is, is doing something that I think is potentially revolutionary in, in how we treat chronic diseases. So at a very high level, 
We all know what vaccines are. Uh, typically, we think of them in the context of infectious diseases, right, as a prophylactic to prevent us from getting an infectious disease. And we think about that as, your, you know, what a vaccine does is it trains your immune system to have a response if this infectious agent enters your body in some capacity and your immune system is able to kill the agent, you don't get sick. That's how a conventional vaccine works, how we conventionally think about them. So Vaccinity has a platform that it's a peptide vaccine platform that the early clinical data suggests that can induce a immune response against agents that are in your body. So if you think about the pathogenesis of diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, one of the hypotheses for why Alzheimer's happens is a buildup of a protein called beta amyloid in our brains. Your body produces that on its own. So the tricky part is with most conventional vaccines that are focused on infectious disease, you're thinking about an exogenous agent and teaching your immune system to deal with something coming from the outside. And what Vaccinity is doing is developing vaccines that allow us to treat chronic diseases by training our immune systems to deal with uh, proteins that cause health issues that are produced by our bodies themselves. And so why this is so potentially compelling is because you can imagine a world where we shift from treating people with chronic disease with chronic medicine, right? You have someone that has a, a disease, they take a pill or a number of pills every single day for the rest of their lives to treat that disease. Vaccinity offers this hope of, of therapeutics which are potentially prophylactic in nature, or in the case where someone already has the disease, um, potentially curative or massively disease-altering through the production of this, this immune training and immune response. So they have a program that has completed phase two in Alzheimer's disease. They have a program that's completed phase one in Parkinson's disease that will uh, begin phase two, I believe, later this year. And uh, you know, beyond that, they have a, a pipeline, early stage potential vaccine candidates in a variety of other indications as well and other chronic diseases uh, as well. So that's what they're doing. And I think what we're most excited about is the promise of what not only are they going after indications that there are no really good treatments for today. But if they're successful, the applicability of this platform is really revolutionary in how we do medicine. That's so interesting. And it uh, brings a lot of uh, hope because uh, I, a lot of uh, famous people also were in the scenes of a while ago uh, disclosing their exposure to the disease and, and uh, putting money on, on research. So it's uh, really amazing. Also on vaccinity, the IPO as far as I could uh, see, and I did some research on Pitchbook, came right after the Series B. And uh, it was, uh, as far as I could tell, earlier than expected or or not really. I mean, how was it? Because normally we see um, companies going public in later stages. Was that something abnormal on vaccinity or there's a, an issue on information here? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, look, you, you have it right. Um, was not a surprise in the sense that... Uh, Early stage biotechnology companies that have the potential that a company like Vaccinity does do frequently go public with this stage of clinical program. There are a number of biotechs with similar market caps and programs in similar stages of development that are also public and went public around this stage. So relative to kind of how tech IPOs go and sort of that world, the biotech world, sort of the public market there, I think this is the right stage for companies to, to be accessible to the types of institutional investors that invest in, in these companies in the public markets. I have a more general question. You know, you've been following and investing in health tech for such a long time. What do you think are the main challenges we as human beings face to provide more inclusive healthcare conditions to the world population? It's a great question. When we think about healthcare, typically, we think about it in this very biomedical framing most of the time. 
you know, we think about it as Gerdain has this disease and we're going to treat Gerdain's disease by with a medicine and everything will be fine. And I think that's really the wrong model to approach how we do healthcare globally. We really need to be thinking about it in terms of, from a public health standpoint, why do people get sick in the first place? What are the set of conditions and factors that lead someone to have poor health? And how do we ensure that every human being in a world where there's so much wealth has as their birthright the access to the set of conditions that are necessary to allow them to maintain good health? As I think about the things that I'm most excited about, I'm building a thesis right now in a field called exposomics, which is the study of our cumulative exposures over our lifetimes as human beings. And these are everything from chemical and, and toxicological exposures from our environment to the food we eat, to the communities that we live in, the built environment around us, and how those exposures ultimately affect our biology and our well-being. And so I think that if we're to scale how we keep the world healthy and keep people healthy, we really need to understand these exposures immensely well. And there's many different words for it. Some people think about it as social determinants of health. What are the set of conditions, whether it's financial well-being or other things that socially determine how healthy you are? Those are the things that I think we really need to focus on if we really want to make everyone have access to that opportunity to be very healthy. And Gordain, under this subject, how do you view government's role all over the world? I mean, do you, there are mixed feelings in terms of uh, government uh, having a position to guarantee access for health care to the ones in need, uh, others don't agree. What are your views on that? I think I've somewhat alluded to it. So I'm philosophically an egalitarian in this regard. So, uh, you know, I think as a species, we have the resources we need to enable everyone to have a reasonable access to both healthcare services, but also, you know, as I said, the conditions that could keep us healthy. And so my, my personal belief on this is that governments should play an important role in enabling that. There are uh, many different models to do that that will work for the value systems of the respective societies that those governments serve. So our society in the United States, you know, our culture values uh, freedom and liber liberty and uh, non-interference from government in a way that you know, I haven't lived there myself, but that it seems that in, culturally in China is very different or, you know, culturally United Kingdom is very different. As much as I want personally to, for governments to play that role, I think ultimately governments, you know, reflect the values of, of their societies. Um, I think in the United States, where uh, I think there's widespread consensus, actually, that people ought to have basic access to healthcare. There's just widespread disagreement on the exact mechanics for it. Uh, I think there's an increasing amount of, you know, certainly industry support for the idea of Medicare Advantage for all. So we have a government-funded healthcare program in the U.S. called Medicare. Medicare Advantage is a version of the government-funded insurance that's run by private companies, uh, which allows for, I think, a lot of in in innovation and for their services to really meet the needs of the communities that they serve. And so the idea that there's an option for people to participate in this government-funded scheme, I think would be great. Today, it's only open to people over 65, and there's a handful of other exceptions, but it's not widely available. So those are my views on it. Uh, you know, I have many smart friends and colleagues that disagree with me and have different views on it. I think we're all figuring it out, but you know, that, that's where I stand. 
do you see any country or uh, countries in in the world that has a that become uh, close to what you think is ideal or is best for the society as a whole or you don't I don't think it's one size fits all I, I really don't the NHS is a wonderful system for the United Kingdom I'm sure it would just copying over the NHS in the US would not is not realistic nor I think would be the right approach So I think it really has to be tailored to the society that the way that we approach healthcare delivery needs to be tailored to the society that we're serving, both from a values perspective, but also in terms of what's being optimized for, right? You know, again, in the US, we optimize for how do we produce the most cutting edge treatments, right? We optimize for this like tail end of healthcare that's inaccessible to most people, but like we optimize for that innovation angle. Maybe that's the right choice for our society. Uh, you know, personally, I have some issues with it, but I think how it's approached needs to be tailored. Totally. Makes sense. So there's another very interesting case in your portfolio that we'd love to hear more about, which is Contraline. So just telling the audience, it's a company that's creating a male contraceptive. I would love to hear your comments on it. You know, uh, do you see any barriers to adoption to be broken for a preconception that contraceptive is something related to a woman's life? You know, there's so many barriers and I think it's an amazing step, but, but I would learn to hear what you have to say. Really fortunate to be working with Contraline. The reason we invested in this company and we've been an investor since C, we led the Series A, is because there is a, contraceptives are, first off, let me say, amazing. I'm very happy they were invented. The pill and all their other variations, IUDs, etc. It's great that they are an option for those that wish to use them. But the status quo is that the burden of contraception falls entirely on women today. And that burden, I think, is really challenging, right? Like men don't even think about, it, right? They're like, you know, and many of these contraceptives, despite the benefits they offer, do have, and I'm speaking in a caveated way, They do have their issues, right? If you go back and you read the original studies that led to the approval of many of these contraceptives, there are a non-de minimis number of side effects. And the experience that many women have with various contraceptives can be widely different. You know, obviously, you know, some folks tolerate IUDs very well and it's a you know comfortable experience. For others, it's an incredibly painful experience that is not a sustainable uh, contraceptive option for them. And so Our view on it was there at least ought to be a alternative where if the male partner in a relationship could take on that responsibility, that would be a good thing. And furthermore, you know, I think for men kind of globally, in terms of just reproductive health in general, um, limiting the potential harm that can come from unintended pregnancies is also, you know, potentially uh, quite a useful thing. Sadly, in the world that we live in, I think most men would not be willing to tolerate contraceptives that have the same side effect profile that the contraceptives for women have today, which is really silly. But, you know, I think it's just a sad reality. And so part of the reason we are so excited about what Contraline is doing is because their contraceptive is entirely non-hormonal. Really, the, the, I can't get into too many details about the specifics of the orcs just from, a, from an IP standpoint. But at a high level, what they're doing is developing a contraceptive that would be non-hormonal, uh, reversible, and provide many years of potential uh, benefit. And so it's not something that you would necessarily, you would have to take every day or anything like that. It's, it's really a physical occlusion. An IUD is not a great comparator for a variety of reasons, but if you think about the duration of contraception that's provided and that you don't have to think about it once it's in, those things are similar with Contraline. We're very excited. We just announced that um, the company has received uh, IRB approval to launch the first 
human study of uh, their product, Adam. Uh, and so we'll be beginning those studies you know, next year uh, in Australia. And that's interesting. You mentioned that uh, I don't think uh, folks know that the company is, is based in Australia. And I was uh, curious to understand how to do source and how, how do you source actually deals outside the U.S. And how do you view the, the other ecosystems around the world in terms of opportunities for biotech? It is not based in Australia, um, but they do have an Australian subsidiary. So by base, I mean headquartered. So the company is a spin out of the University of Virginia, but Australia has a really wonderful R&D infrastructure for medical device companies, specifically in urology. Um, so Australia has one of the highest rates of uh, vasectomy in the world, which means that there's <laughs> it's a great place to recruit for this potential study. And they have some of the most uh, important key opinion leaders in the field of urology uh, in practice uh, in their hospitals. And so for a variety of reasons, um, the company decided to begin their clinical studies there rather than the United States, which actually many of our companies do. There's great collaboration between both the United States and Australia in terms of clinical studies, as well as the United States and Canada. You know, both of these these nations offer, uh, in addition to everything I just mentioned, uh, very strong tax incentives to run studies there and encourage the buildup of R&D infrastructure. So very forward-thinking governments in both of those geographies. That's interesting. Besides those uh, running studies outside of the U.S., we'd love to hear that. If do you source actually source deals in any of other ecosystem, and or if if not, is there any ecosystem that's currently calling your attention and why? You know, as I mentioned, from a thesis standpoint, we focus on what you know the question of what problems can we solve. The answer to that question may be a company based in Virginia, it may be a company based in India, it may be a company based in Canada. And so we take the approach of, there's a few approaches to sourcing, right? Like the one of the classic VC approaches to sourcing that you hear about is like, show up in a city, have an event, drink some martinis with people, you meet a bunch of founders, maybe you get some deals out of it. We don't really do that. Our approach is much more like, okay, we have a point of view in this area. Now let's go see, okay, globally, what are the companies operating in this space? Let's meet those companies, see if there's a potential match there, and then we'll invest. Now, most of the companies that we end up investing in are in the United States, but we're, we're imminently closing on an investment in an India domiciled company. We've made a number of investments in Canada. I expect sooner rather than later, we'll make investments in West Africa. We would love to make more investments in LATAM. You know, so we should be talking more definitely. We're very flexible in terms of our mandate, where we go in terms of you know, where the solutions are. And that's interesting because our healthcare system is is unique on the sense that uh, government still has a good management of uh, basic diseases. So that's why we have a decent uh, infrastructure for vaccination and so forth. But other than that, we have a very, very high level uh, health uh, care for people that can afford and a very poor condition for those in need. So despite uh, the issue of uh, how we deal with uh, pandemics and vaccination programs, other than that, um, we have uh, a lot to learn from other regions. And it's uh, and now we've been seeing some startups taking the, the issues of uh, how to make uh, health uh, more accessible so in terms of uh, insurance and, and uh, access to uh, labs and exams that would normally take a long time in lines in the government, so they make it available cheaper. So, so that's what we're seeing here. So, so yeah, maybe it's going to be a good, uh, a good way to continue interacting with uh, 
our Gotham Palace. <laughs> yeah, I know, for sure, for sure. And I think, look, I think there's there's some solutions that scale globally. Certainly, if you think about medicines and medical devices and those sorts of things, those things tend to scale more easily at a global level. Of course, uh, it gets more complicated when you get into healthcare delivery, right? And how we're actually providing care and the mechanics of paying for care and so forth, which tends to be more localized. But that's not to say that these aren't important problems. And, you know, we, we certainly are interested in going after them. Yeah, totally. We normally finish our conversations with uh, some philosophical questions. Um, and it's interesting because it's they're the same for everybody. So it's nice to understand uh, what are the answers all over. So I would uh, love to understand how optimistic you are with the future and uh, with our lives as uh, human beings and uh, more specific in, in health uh, tech. What are the main issues or problems that uh, you would see uh, innovators to address over the next few years, in your view? So in terms of optimism, you know, I'm lucky in, in our firm, my partner is the optimist and I'm the skeptic. Uh, so I'd say I, I sit in the camp, uh, you know, hey, there's a lot of stuff we better fix pretty soon. We have a climate crisis we got to deal with. Uh, you know, there's a potential water crisis we got to deal with. You know, I think there's some issues with how we structure our societies in the developed world that we need to work through in terms of you know political opposition and so forth. That's not to say they aren't solvable, right? And there's a good shot at it. I think an important step of it, and it's going to be odd to say as a VC, is there's a lot of focus in particular on climate change on, like, let's invent technologies to solve this problem. And while that's important, and you know, we should as VCs invest in those things, and you know, we're so excited founders are building those things, and they'll play an important role. It's not the only, my view at least, it's not the only, it's not sufficient to solve the problem. Uh, we also have to consume less, right? We also need to recognize that we are expending more carbon than we should. You know, really think about what it means in terms of sacrifice that needs to be made in parallel with technologies that you know are coming to bear. So I guess that's my neutral view on you know, our species over the next 100 years. In terms of uh, healthcare and healthcare technology, you know, another area that we're building a thesis in right now that I'm very excited about uh, is around this concept of gentle medicine. As I mentioned earlier, we treat, we over-medicalize a lot of problems. And modern medicine is amazing for so many ways. I am so great for, for many of the medical technologies that have been invented and how we approach medicine today is really amazing. However, we do over-medicalize problems and we do perform surgeries that are not necessary. We do prescribe medicines that we don't need. Uh, and we do cause what's called iatrogenic disease, disease that's caused by the practice of medicine itself. One issue as an example is this issue of polypharmacy, where you have elderly patients that are chronically ill that are on 15 plus medicines just to live their day to day. And there's some amazing literature that's just been published from a number of institutions in Israel where they were able to consistently show a reduction in the total number of medicines that uh, their patients were taking from 15, I think, to eight without any deleterious effects on health. You're avoiding potential side effects. You're reducing total cost of care. You're simplifying a person's life. We should do more of that. Like Everyone should be on exactly the right number of medicines, no more and no less. And the same goes for how we approach surgery. You should get every surgery that you really need and don't get the ones you don't. And you know, our system and our incentives and so forth aren't necessarily set up for that yet. But I'm very optimistic and excited that there will be, you know, entrepreneurs as well as policymakers and physicians that will help us, you know, crack this problem over the next 10 years. 
And that's uh, before I pass to Lulu for the icebreaker. This is something very interesting that I would love to explore. One of the big issues here in Brazil is this uh, disalignment of interest between the, the health insurance companies and uh, hospitals and clinics and doctors that uh, prescribes more than they should. And, and this becomes a chronic effect on the health uh, structure as a whole. How do you think this can be um, solved? I mean, the disalignment of interest can be tackled. I think the best care delivery organizations are value-based in nature, which basically, you know, they take the approach of this is the pot of money that we have to manage the health of this person. And our job is to minimize the total cost of care for this person, of course, and keep them as healthy as possible. And, you know, if we do that, then, you know, our incentives are aligned. So there are some really great managed care organizations that I can think of here in the U.S. that take this value-based approach. You know, it's not perfect. There are some issues with it. In fact, in some cases, you might under-prescribe because you, you have a cap on what you might spend on someone to some extent. But by and large, it, it seems to dramatically improve health outcomes because you're really focused on just keeping the person as healthy as possible. And when those systems are well-designed, I think they can work really well. Interesting. Lily, go ahead. So now for our final icebreaker, we'd love to hear something that you're currently excited about and something that's currently scaring you. You know, excited about, uh, I'm really optimistic for the, you know, I live in New York City. Obviously, New York City really suffered during the pandemic. And one of the things that we're starting to see is this new creation that's ongoing right now, where there's so many new businesses being started. There's this energy around the place that's, you know, how do we rebuild? You know, what's going to come next? You see storefronts starting to fill up again. And so I'm really excited for that. I think it's probably a phenomenon that's happening in cities all over the world. And so that's something that deeply makes me feel optimistic for the next uh, few years. It's kind of like, you know, the, the forest regrowing after a forest fire. Something that scares me is I don't think pandemics are going away in our lifetime. If anything, the set of conditions that are required for a pandemic to emerge are only uh, becoming more prevalent. And I do not think that we have yet built the infrastructure that's required globally to respond to them effectively and still have to work through a lot of, at least here in the U.S., political issues around how our society manages them. You know, uh, God forbid we have another one on our hands sooner rather than later. So nervous about that, uh, um, but optimistic, at least about New York City. I have something to look forward to. I'm looking forward to go to New York City to see all of this. I'm yeah, almost come anytime. It's, it's a very fun place to be right now. <laughs> well, good day. Thank you so much. Uh, very interesting conversation. I think it's going to be very useful and uh, informative for people down here. And I'm looking forward to discuss with you some opportunities that we see down here and see how we can uh, continue to. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate all the, all the thoughtful questions. And <laughs> I, I really hope we'll make an investment you know, in the region you know, very soon. So we'll look forward to collaborating you know, in due course. That's great. Totally. I, I'm very jealous about you guys from the US that uh, you exchange pipes and you co-invest together. So I, <laughs> I'm waiting for this to come to Brazil. <laughs> it was a great learning experience. Thank you, Gurdjian, so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, guys.